It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the, the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you is the word of the Lord. Your word is alive and your word speaks to us. And by your spirit, you speak to us through your very word. And it is a precious thing. And we also know that uh, it's not only something that you teach us and something that we learn and meditate upon, but uh, it's also something that does something to us. Uh, it's your very counsel to us. It um, corrects and uh, rebukes uh, in time of need, uh, but it also trains us. And uh, most importantly, it reveals to us who you are and your will for um, this world and for your people. And so we pray, God, that we would approach your word with a, a sense of uh, we're hearing something uh, precious because it's from you, that we're hearing something uh, important because it's from you. And uh, to that end, help us to uh, give our full uh, attention, not only in mind, but uh, also in heart to what you have to say to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so for the last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the narratives in the book of Daniel. And uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with Daniel. Uh, I haven't decided yet. Um, I might, I don't know, I get the sense that maybe it's, some, it's time to talk about something uh, new. But um, 
this is a Daniel chapter six is actually the last narrative story. And after this, it gets there's like the shift in genre from narrative to what's called the apocalyptic literature. And uh, if you wanted to read it on your own, it, it kind of feels like reading the book of Revelation because there's all these visions and corresponding symbolism. But this final story in uh, at least in narrative form uh, in the book of Daniel is probably the story that uh, most people are familiar with. And I know a lot of kids are listening to the story. And uh, if you uh, read the storybook Bible, this is probably the story that you're familiar with. Uh, it's when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den and God miraculously saves him. And I think it's supposed to be set up as this parallel with Daniel chapter 3. If you remember from Daniel 3, it was actually Daniel's friends who were thrown into a fiery furnace because they refused to worship the golden image built by King Nebuchadnezzar. And this story is a, a, a kind of like a parallel to that story, except instead of Daniel's friends facing threat for their faith, it's Daniel himself. And instead of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's King Darius. Instead of Babylon, it's Persia and the Medes. And instead of being punished for refusing to worship a golden image, Daniel's being punished for praying. The king is different. The empire is different. The command is different. But in the midst of this, God is still the same. And I think that's what uh, this story and these stories are ultimately meant to show us, that the circumstances of life are unpredictable and oftentimes beyond our control. But even in the midst of it all, God is still the one who is in control of all things. And if you are an exile, a Jewish exile, that's something you derive comfort from. Now, if God is in control, uh, I guess the natural question for us is this. So what? Right. What does it mean for us if we believe that God is in control? If we believe that to be true, how are we supposed to respond? And, you know, if you believe that God is somewhat disconnected from us and he kind of just does whatever he wants, um, it's called deism. He's kind of like this watchmaker. He creates the world and sets it going, but he has no real meaningful interaction uh, with the world. Then, yeah, the fact that God is in control doesn't really mean much to us. It's like knowing that uh, the governor has power to give this executive order for the state, but having no access to him. But you see, if God is not disconnected from us and if we do have access to him, then his sovereignty means something for us. It, it means something uh, different to us. And that means that we can respond to the fact that he is in control. How? I think the logical answer is prayer. And that's ultimately what I want to talk about today. Prayer. If God really is in control of all things and he has given us access to himself through prayer, then wouldn't it make sense to petition the one who is in control to help in time of need? Now, I, I do think as a culture, maybe we have gotten a little bit cynical when people start to talk about prayer. And I think it's because in our culture, people tend to talk about prayer uh, in an overly sentimental way. So when people say, uh, when there's like a tragedy or something bad happens and people say uh, thoughts and prayers uh, are with someone, usually it's because they want to express a sentiment that they are sorry that something bad happened. And it's kind of a way to express uh, maybe care or compassion. Uh, I'm not saying the sentiment is bad. But the sentiment to pray is not as powerful as actually praying to a God who is in control. And how many people who say they are uh, their thoughts and prayers are with somebody, uh, I, I do wonder, uh, and I'm not sure, I wonder how many of them are actually praying. Who knows besides God? But I do hope people are following up that sentiment with actual prayer because that is where the power is. Uh, prayer is a way to petition a God who is sovereign and in control. Now, when I was in college, 
I had this sociology professor. I was a sociology minor, so I took a lot of sociology classes. Uh, I had uh, the sociology professor, and he was a PhD student at Rutgers, but he was also a believer. And I took three of his classes. I took an introduction to sociology course with him. And when I took that course, I was like, hmm, this guy kind of sounds like a Christian based on the way he talks, but I wasn't really sure. Then I took another course with him, a sociology of religion course. And in that course, he talked about his faith and he was able to do that because it was an appropriate way to use uh, his life and his faith as an example of a sociological concept. And then later I found out he was actually a very devout believer and he was involved in helping out uh, the Chinese Christian group on campus and a youth ministry called Young Life. And so I got to know him a little bit throughout college and uh, there were times we just went out to the dining hall and I got to talk to him a little bit and pick his brain. And, you know, he was very, um, uh, you know, he was very inquisitive and, you know, um, very engaged with life of students. So he asked me about, you know, my life. He asked me about my relationship with Christ at that point. And I told him uh, I decided that I was going to pursue a calling uh, into pastoral ministry. And I remember uh, at the end of the meal, he said, um, I'm going to pray for you. Uh, but then he did something I never saw anybody do before. He said, wait, hang on. I need to write this down. And he wrote down, pray for Sam. <laughs> and he said, you know, I never want to tell someone that I'm going to pray for them and not actually pray for them. So I want to make sure I remember uh, to pray for you. And when I was in college, that was a really important uh, lesson for me. And it was a very important example for me at that young age, because what it taught me was the importance of prayer and the importance of honoring the prayer request, right? Uh, since college, I have tried to model him throughout my life. And so when someone asks me to pray, uh, if I tell them I will pray for them, uh, I make sure that I pray for them. Even if it's like in the middle of the night and I wake up and I say, oh, I forgot to pray for this person. I will pray for that person because of the lesson that my uh, former sociology professor taught me. And, uh, you know, especially when uh, a lot of times people will ask for prayer and uh, it's just kind of things out of human control, whether it's like someone is ill or sick or, um, I don't know, just like things that I cannot directly help in, uh, what else can I do except petition the God who is in control? One of the things I admire about Daniel is that he was a man of prayer, even in a time of exile, even in a time where he's basically being treated unfairly, uh, especially in this passage. And in our passage, it says he got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God. Now, Daniel. Uh, he, as our pastor says, he's also a man of excellence. He's a man of integrity, and he was also a very capable leader and governor of the peoples, which is why uh, King Darius wanted to set him over all the kingdom to govern. Now, at this point, Daniel is probably an old man who is maybe in his 70s or 80s, and as a Jewish exile, he has probably uh, lived his life uh, longer in foreign nations than in his home. And he has outlasted several kings. He's outlasted King Nebuchadnezzar. He has outlasted King Belshazzar. And now he is experienced life uh, on his third king. And again, what that says is God is the one who is in control. God is the one who ultimately preserved him and showed him favor. Now, he has been recognized as someone who had great skill, which is why King Darius made Daniel one of three high officials. And Daniel became very distinguished of above all the high officials because the text says an excellent spirit was in him. And I think that simply means he did a really good job. He was an excellent, he was a man of excellence and people recognized it. 
As a result, the other high officials, uh, they don't like it, right? He's just this Jewish exile, and who is he to be at this high status? And they start to get a little bit jealous, which is probably heightened by the, the fact that, again, Daniel is a Jewish exile. And what they do is they try to find a ground of complaint or fault with Daniel, but they can't find one. Uh, it's like someone who tries to dig up dirt on a politician in order to get them removed from office. And most of the time, people can find that dirt because most people are uh, corrupted by the temptation of power. Yet with Daniel, they can't find anything. And so what they have to do is they have to come up with a plan uh, that is unfair, and they use his obedience to the law of God against him. And these officials tell King Darius that, look, all the governing leaders, all the satraps, everybody is in unity and is in agreement that you, king, you should pass a law that says, whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days shall be cast into a den of lions. Now, presumably because everyone was unified in this, King Darius signs a document, which means praying to God suddenly becomes illegal and the punishment for prayer becomes very severe. Daniel knows that the document has been signed. And so what does he do? He goes home. He faces Jerusalem and does uh, the most subversive act he could have performed during those 30 days, but which was normal for him. He prays three times a day on his knees. And these high officials jump at the opportunity to get Daniel. And Daniel gets thrown into the den of lions. And the, the part of the story that people remember most is God sent an angel to shut the lion's mouths so that Daniel wouldn't be harmed. And Daniel miraculously makes it out alive. Uh, now, we're not talking about the part of the story that people know. But again, I want to focus on uh, the topic of prayer and what we learn from Daniel about prayer. What was so important uh, that Daniel had to keep praying? Uh, I mean, I guess if you take like a somewhat practical approach to his situation, I guess you could say, couldn't Daniel have just stopped praying for 30 days, right? It's just 30 days. He's been praying for decades. So is 30 days really going to matter? And couldn't he have just started again after the decree had expired? Uh, then he could have avoided getting thrown into the lion's den. What was so important that Daniel couldn't stop praying even for those 30 days. Well, the nice thing about the book of Daniel is that in chapter 9, there's a record of Daniel's prayer that takes place actually during the reign of King Darius. So it gives us some idea of what Daniel was praying during this time. Now, if you read uh, chapter 9, Daniel basically prays two things. First, he confesses the sin of his people. Uh, he says, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And uh, there's basically 12 verses of statements like that. We have sinned. We have done wickedly. We have rebelled. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, etc. The second thing he prays is he asks God for his anger to turn away from the city of Jerusalem. In other words, he is asking for mercy and he is asking for God's face to shine upon Jerusalem again. And this is how his prayer ends. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Amen. Right? That's how his prayer concludes. It doesn't say amen. I added that. Now, why is Daniel praying this and why is it so important? Well, he understands why he's in exile. And even though he has been able to gain the favor of these kings of various kingdoms and had this uh, 
you know, high status jobs within the government, he still maintains his distinct Jewish identity and he refuses to assimilate into this foreign nation. And I have to believe one of the ways that he is able to do that, especially without a temple to worship in, is through prayer. As he prays, he remembers Babylon is not my home. Persia is not my home. That's why he faces Jerusalem. He knows that Jerusalem is where his home is. And here's the most important thing, right? In that prayer, he says, right, oh Lord, right, uh, act, right, pay attention and act. He knows that God is the one who's ultimately in control, and therefore God is the only one who can ultimately take his people back home. God is sovereign, God is powerful. And that is why he can be very persistent in prayer. Now, Daniel was indeed persistent in prayer to pray three times a day, uh, even with the threat of being thrown into a lion's den. It takes a lot of persistence. And anybody who has tried to cultivate a consistent prayer life knows it's not an easy task. Uh, some of us have been praying twice a week on the evenings on Monday and Thursday nights. And, uh, you know, for me, at least, I think it was a lot easier to do that in the beginning because we had a lot of new things to pray for. And, you know, indeed, some nights have been powerful nights of prayer. But to be quite honest, some nights it kind of feels a little bit like a grind, right? It seems like we have been lifting up these same prayers over and over again. And sometimes you just get tired of praying the same things. And that's only two nights per week. Think about how Daniel would have felt praying three times a day towards Jerusalem. I imagine he's praying the same things and he has been praying these same things for decades because they've been living in exile for decades. God, we have sinned. Please take us home. God, we have sinned. Please take us home over and over and over again. And yet the importance of those prayers is demonstrated in his subversive act of continuing to pray even when his life becomes endangered by it and a law is established to forbid it. Now, there's a few experiences, I think, that confirm uh, what Daniel was doing was actually, indeed, the right thing to do. Uh, first, God vindicated him by sending an angel to protect him from getting eaten by lions. Then God further vindicated him when the king sent these conspirators in the lion's den, and they got torn apart. But there's another place in the book of Daniel where I think we can say that it was good that Daniel was persistent in his prayer. Because Daniel also heard directly from an angel in a vision. So if you read Daniel chapter 10, Daniel has a vision in the third year of King Cyrus, king of Persia. And in this vision, he sees a man clothed in linen, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, and his legs gleam of burnished bronze. Like you can see what I say when I'm, it's like reading the book of Revelation. You kind of have to visualize what Daniel is seeing. And uh, you know, some commentators think this is the angel Gabriel. This angelic figure says to Daniel, Fear not, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. What a vision. Imagine spending decades praying, right? This is now it's uh, King Cyrus, so going through a couple kings, and then finally hearing from a heavenly being that God has heard your words and that he was there, right? The angel was there because of his words. Now, what was he doing? Well, 
in Daniel 10, he's fighting in a spiritual battle against the prince of Persia. When I say he, I don't mean Daniel, I mean this angel, right? He's fighting uh, in a spiritual battle against the prince of Persia, which is a demonic spirit, so that King Cyrus would ultimately execute God's will of allowing the Israelites to return home from exile and rebuild their temple so that God's presence would be with them. And in a certain way, God answers Daniel's decades of prayer uh, through King Cyrus when he stirs the heart of King Cyrus to make that decree to allow the exiles to finally go back to Jerusalem and to return home. Now, you can actually summarize the Bible uh, through that theme of home and exile. Uh, from the very beginning, uh, ooh, if anybody participated in the Bible readathon from the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, very beginning in the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve were at home in the Garden of Eden. Due to their sin, what happened? They were exiled from God's presence, exiled out of Eden. Israel was at home in Jerusalem. And, you know, if you read the details of the temple, a lot of the tedious details, you notice a lot of the features of the temple point to Eden. For example, on the veil that separated from uh, the Holy of Holies, there is this image of a cherubim, which served as a reminder of the cherubim that guarded the way to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were exiled. And due to Israel's sin, what happened? They were exiled from Jerusalem. Exile is the punishment for sin. Now, Daniel's praying for God to be merciful and to forgive their sin so that his people can go home. In one sense, God answers that prayer, as I said before. But here's the frustrating thing. The frustrating thing is that after returning home, after God allows them to return home, after they go through this entire process of rebuilding the temple, which you read about in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, God's people ultimately return to their sinful ways. The end of the book of Nehemiah doesn't really have a happy ending. It ends with the people uh, defiling the temple, violating the Sabbath, failing to keep the law of God. If you read uh, the prophet Malachi, who was a prophet during this post-exile period, he talks about how corrupt the priests were. Uh, they offered polluted offerings and they robbed God by withholding tithes. So God has to rebuke them and send curse upon them for their corruption. And you kind of have this cycle all over again, right? People sin, uh, God shows an act of uh, mercy and allows them to return home. And then people sin again, right? This constant cycle. And you can kind of summarize the Old Testament in that way. Well, again. Uh, that word, uh, that word stuck out to me, especially this week. Uh, that can be one of the most frustrating words, depending on the context in which that word is used. And again, it's a word that I heard a lot this week after the death of George Floyd. Uh, people are saying, I can't believe this is happening again, right? Uh, some of you know I'm in school, and my professor, he wrote a book based on the Book of Lamentations, and he ends his book with a prayer of lament based on Lamentations 5. And I think the time of uh, publication when he wrote the book, it was shortly after the events of Ferguson. So he uh, you know, uh, writes a lament based on Lamentations 5, and he offers a lament for the deaths of Michael Brown and Eric Gardner. Uh, this past week, he pub published another prayer in this online uh, magazine, and uh, he changed the prayer um, to now include Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. And on the bottom of that article, uh, there's this little note, and it says this, excerpt, uh, excerpted and reworked, and then in parentheses, again, 
from Prophetic Lament, which is the title of his book. And that word again, uh, I don't know, when I read that in this like little footnote, uh, it made me sad. You know, I wonder how many times he had to rework that prayer again and again, and how exhausting and how frustrating and how exasperating it is when evil happens again and again and again. Now, if you read the Bible, you can only imagine how frustrated God uh, must have been at the cycle of sin and evil that he sees. Uh, my wife said, Will Smith said, like, all this um, uh, racial injustice stuff is not really new. It's been happening for um, all the time. It's just that we have phones now, so people can see it now, and people are becoming more aware of it now. And I, I thought about that, and I said, wow, you know, God sees everything. Imagine what he sees, right? <laughs> Imagine all the sin and evil and injustice he sees. And uh, he must be incredibly frustrated at this cycle of sin and evil. Uh, and maybe perhaps a better way to describe it is how Paul describes it in Romans 8, when he says, uh, calls it groaning, right? All of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And those of you who experienced childbirth would know that kind of pain better than me. But he says that's, that's kind of like the nature of the world, that kind of pain. Uh, and Paul's point is eventually it's going to birth something wonderful and something beautiful um, through the gospel. But that groaning, that's the experience of one who has been exiled and cut off from the presence of God. You see, the only way that the cycle ultimately ends is when God himself breaks the cycle. And he breaks that cycle in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. You see, Daniel's prayer is a good one, uh, but it isn't really fully ultimately answered until Jesus. The only way God can pour out his mercy and forgiveness once and for all is if there is someone to absorb uh, his judgment and wrath for sin and evil and in particular for our sin and our evil otherwise there is no way we can go back home when jesus died on the cross for us you know what was happening at this spiritual and cosmic level jesus was becoming the ultimate exile on account of our sin jesus was being the one who was cast out from the presence of god which is why he cries my god my god why have you forsaken me that is the cry of an exile and it's only after Jesus is exiled that now we are invited to come back home. Which is why after Jesus' death, uh, the gospel writers all point out, and our, our elder Fred pointed this out before as well, they all point out how this curtain temple was torn in two. This curtain with an image of a cherubim reminding you cannot go home, that the presence of God is being guarded because you are in exile because of your sin. That veil is torn in two, which is a way to say God is opening up the way to himself, and he is making a way for us to come home. Now, we haven't reached uh, the end of the story yet. Why? Because we're not home yet. How do we know? Because we live in a time where uh, people are dying from a virus. Because we live in a time where there is a lot of injustice and a lot of oppression and a lot of evil. Because we live in a time where there's racism and violence. These things tell us we are not home yet. And I would say in particular for the black community, um, the lack of feeling safe uh, going out and walking in the streets, that is certainly a sign that they are not home yet either. Because you see what home is meant to represent is a place of security, 
a place of safety, a place of joy. We are not home yet, friends. We are still waiting for Jesus to return, and we are still waiting for him to ultimately take us home in this final resurrection. Our home is with the Lord in the new Jerusalem. In that city, there's no more sin and no more death. There's no more virus, no more pestilence. There's no more violence. There is perfect justice and perfect righteousness because Jesus will be our king and he will reign and rule with holiness, righteousness, truth, justice, and love. And at the end of the day, that is the kind of king that we all long for. And if there were ever a time to long for home, friends, I think 2020 is a time to long for home, <laughs> right? Based on all that is going on in this world, this would be that time. Uh, but when we, come, when we return home, uh, is really up to the Lord. And so in the meantime, uh, we kind of live in this in-between stage where we know that this is not our home, and yet we still dwell in this home. Jesus has, a made, made a way, Jesus has made a way for us to come home through his blood, and yet we are not completely there. And so until we are home, uh, he's called us to follow him, no matter the cost. Uh, in a letter to the exiles in Jeremiah 29, the exiles are living in a foreign land, and they are told to what? To seek the welfare of the city, to seek the shalom of the city. And if you've been part of a church in New York City, I am sure you have heard a reference to that passage because everybody quotes it. But I think a lot of people forget the second part of that verse. You know what it also says, besides seek the welfare of the city, it also says pray on its behalf. Pray on its behalf. So until we are home with the Lord, let's turn our face towards the new Jerusalem and persist in prayer. And that includes praying for our city and praying on its behalf, not as a sentiment, but praying because God is in control, because God is sovereign, because we know the character of God, because God is good, because God hates sin and evil and oppression, because God is a God of justice and compassion and mercy. Daniel never forgot his distinct identity after decades in a foreign land. Think about it, decades in a foreign land. He never forgot who he was. And he, perhaps even more impressive, he had a very successful career in Babylon and still never forgot who he was. Friends, may we never forget who we are in the Lord. May we never forget that our home is ultimately with the Lord. And therefore, may we never cease to pray and ensure that our hearts are turned towards the Lord in the new Jerusalem. Let's pray together.